Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Recently, I've been going down a social media rabbit hole. I love being a homemaker. I get to dictate the rhythm of our day in a way I never would be able to if I wasn't home. Search for Trad Wife, and a vision of tranquil motherhood appears. I dress for the job of homemaker, mother, gardener, cook, mother, wife, nutritionist, activity coordinator. The list goes on and on and on and on. I know that what everyone puts on social media is a highlight reel, their best selves. But these particular momfluencers are providing more than just gardening tips and childcare musings. They're selling a lifestyle. Trad wife, which means traditional wife. It is a woman who chooses to live a more traditional life with ultra-traditional gender roles. A set of values, an ideology. Think of them as the PR firm for the traditional heteronormative family, where women are feminine, housework is joyful, and motherhood is sacred. I didn't even know what happiness was until I became a mom. All you have to do is look at the other hashtags they use alongside Tradwife, and things start to sort of come into focus. Homemaking, Christian mom. Feminine, not feminist. I submit and I serve my husband. It is a blessing to be my husband's helpmate, and the Bible has the man of the household, not the woman. It's easy to dismiss this as a one-off social media trend. But what tradwives are doing is deeply political. By repackaging and idealizing a 1950s style of white Christian motherhood, they're actually laying the groundwork for an extreme right-wing agenda. They're building demand for a set of policies that encourage, or even conscript, women to that traditional role. And they're distracting people from the politicians who are literally dismantling democracy in order to enshrine that view of family life into law. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. This season, we're exploring mothers as a political force. Over the last two episodes, we've examined the resurgence of a particular type of conservative, largely white activism and its extensive history in the U.S., But activism is not the only force that leads to political change. So for this episode, we're widening the lens a bit and taking a look at the way politics and culture intersect and how a bunch of young women defending traditional family life on social media are helping move fringe ideas into the political mainstream. The main tool in the Tradwife arsenal is the same one that's deployed by groups like Moms for Liberty and conservative politicians like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Nostalgia. So the core ideology, the messaging, that doesn't change. The nostalgia doesn't change. But what does change is the way that it gets presented. That's Evian Leidig, 
She's a fellow in the Department of Culture Studies at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on far-right digital cultures, especially those that focus on gender and sexuality. There's a lot of trad wives who like to present a modern vision of what a contemporary homemaker looks like today. Evian first got interested in the trad wife movement back in 2015, when she started noticing their hashtags popping up online. Trad wife, trad mom, trad wife life, traditional housewife. The trad movement is definitely a reactionary backlash to feminism. They believe that feminism forces women to, quote, act unnaturally. That forces women outside of the household. Since then, the trend has gone more mainstream. Thanks in part to a very savvy PR spin. They tend to, in a way, actually use a feminist argument to say, well, it's my choice if I want to stay at home and be a traditional homemaker. But saying that it's a choice does neglect actually what the movement tries to embody, which is more than just a choice, but it's it's a lifestyle that they are performing for others. And it's a community that actually gets created out of that. If you spend enough time consuming Tradwife content, you see the way they twist the choice language of feminism against it and the clever way that they build their audience by tapping into some very understandable feelings. Then comes the misdirection. All of that exhaustion, anger, and resentment could go away if women just stayed home. Are you tired of fighting your way through this endless capitalist rat race? Life's burdens got you down. Burnt out from trying to balance your career and your family? Well, have we got the solution for you. Embrace your natural purpose. Return to the home, but with a contemporary spin. These days, you can even open your own credit card. It's not surprising that the pandemic fueled this trend. Suddenly, moms found ourselves juggling an impossible workload. We couldn't do it all. So we reached for our sourdough starters and tried to exert a little control over what we could. It's also no coincidence that this trend took off alongside Trumpism. Tradwives are advocating for a return to a status quo. In many ways, it's the perfect complement to a backlash movement that aims to make America great again. Both offer a vision for how society can be better by embracing this yearning for what was. Because what the far right does is that it elevates certain gender and racial as well as class aspects of the traditional trad lifestyle and and uses that to insert its political ideology. And by gender and racial dynamics, I'm referring explicitly to heterosexual relationships as well as white middle-class projections. And that is assumed to be natural and sort of maintaining the status quo. So this is where I start to see how far-right actors use traditionalism to sort of project their vision of what is a utopian society and what men's and women's roles should be within that society. The tradwife trend is more than just a conservative pipe dream. We're seeing instances where this marketing of traditional motherhood is colliding with a far-right ethno-nationalist agenda. In fact, there's already a country where this concept of family and women's roles in it is taking root. Hungary. 
If you've been following Hungarian politics, it's probably in the context of the country's descent into authoritarianism. But what's facilitated that shift is an embrace of nostalgia that sounds a lot like the Tradwife movement. Right now, Hungarian leaders have an obsession with the country's declining birth rate. A top national priority is getting women to have more babies. So the government has created a whole slew of policies that reward heterosexual marriage and childbearing. If you're a woman in Hungary with four more children, you get a lifetime waiver on income taxes and subsidized loans for cars and housing. On the surface, this sounds kind of nice. I mean, what's the problem if the government wants to help a few families buy minivans? But they aren't just handing out tax breaks. They want women back in the home. And they're suppressing any ideas or people that could get in the way. And nobody understands this better than Andrea Petto. My name is Andrea Petto. I'm a professor of gender studies at Central European University in Vienna. Andrea used to teach gender studies in Budapest, Hungary. But in 2018, her entire field of study was banned. Then later that year, Central European University, which is dedicated to advancing democracy, was forced out of the country. And it didn't stop there. The state audit office issued a report which was saying that women who have got higher educational degree, they are responsible for the demographic decline and the demographic problems. And the state should reconsider spending public money on women's higher education because this is counterproductive. It takes place from men and the women are not producing children. So how did Hungary get to this point? Well, it all goes back to one man, Viktor Orban, the country's prime minister. Up until recently, Orban probably wasn't a household name for most Americans. But as he became more and more extreme, people began to notice. His rise to the top wasn't a straight line. His Fidesz party began as an anti-communist youth organization, fighting for freedoms from Hungary's Soviet-era dictatorship. When he first became prime minister, back in the 1990s, he was a fairly traditional pro-West free market guy. At the time, he championed a number of economic reforms and oversaw Hungary's entrance into NATO. But Orban's political rise stalled and his politics shifted after he lost re-election in 2002. He didn't like losing. It affected him, you know, psychologically. And he started to come up with ideas about how if he should ever gain power again, that he wouldn't make the same mistakes, essentially, as what he had done in the past. And the other thing that happened is that he sort of transitioned from being this fairly standard pro-Western or pro-American liberal to being more of a right-wing nationalist. That's Elizabeth Sarovsky. She's a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine. She covers both U.S. and European politics. After Orban's party was ousted, Hungary was ruled for a decade by the country's center-left socialist party. But that didn't go so well. The party failed to solve the financial crisis, and xenophobia and racism were on the rise. That turmoil led to the socialist prime minister's resignation in 2009. And it was in that environment that Orban ran for office again, this time as a right-wing nationalist. 
it's not clear whether his political beliefs really changed or if the shift was merely pragmatic, a way to occupy a vacant political lane. But regardless of his motivation, it worked. Viktor Orban came back. He said, listen, I'm going to fix all of these economic problems. He won, got into office fair and square, and he became prime minister of Hungary again in 2010. Back in office, Orban put his campaign promises into practice. He turned his back on the Western countries he once embraced and began to tout a new ideology, illiberalism. Yes, illiberalism. It is often traced back to a speech that he gave in 2014 where he says liberal democracy as a system is failing. You know, the U.S. is a mess. Financially, it's a mess. They have, you know, imposed their problems on the rest of the world with their financial system. And, you know, look at these other countries that seem to be holding together much better. China, Russia, Turkey, they have different systems that are not liberal democracy, and that's the future. And we don't want to be a liberal state, but we want to be an illiberal state. Illiberalism is a political philosophy that rejects democracy. Free and fair elections, constitutional limits to power, basic rights and liberties. Orban has used it as a way to centralize power. Economically, That meant stripping financial institutions of their autonomy and placing them under state control. Politically, it meant changing the rules so that no one could challenge Orban or the Fidesz party. In 2011, Hungary adopted a new constitution, which was passed solely through votes from his Fidesz party allies in parliament. They passed a new constitution in a couple of, you know, weeks or months, I think, which is quite fast. His party operates as a kind of machine. There's no dissent. He controls the media. They have a supermajority. And if they want to get something done, they can do it. And that's, that's a very sort of efficient political machine. Armed with a new constitution and a two-thirds supermajority in parliament, Orban turned Hungary into a laboratory for liberalism. Here's the thing about illiberal or authoritarian leaders. They frequently exploit moments of chaos or uncertainty to rise to power. In Orban's case, it was economic uncertainty. By promising and providing a degree of economic stability, he was able to gain power legitimately. But maintaining that power requires attacking and vanquishing any potential political threat. Orban's done this in a few ways. First, by identifying an enemy. Here's Andrea Petto again. The liberal governments are always looking for enemies because they don't have policy agendas. So gender studies professors, George Soros, the migrants, LGBTQIT activists, rainbow families, anybody can be an enemy at any moment if that brings in votes or it brings any kind of economic gain. The enemy, no matter who it is, helps create a binary. You can't have a victim without a villain. In Hungary, it's the traditional family that's under attack. In 2020, the Hungarian government amended the constitution again. Now, it redefines family to exclude same-sex couples. It requires that children identify with the gender assigned at birth and insists that families provide kids with an upbringing based on values 
stemming from our country's constitutional identity and Christian culture. That's a direct quote. By shifting the conversation towards protection of families, Orban can avoid talking about his rollback of legal rights. It's a classic bait-and-switch. Replacing women as agents of change and talking about mothers as the only acceptable and desirable position of women in the society. Motherhood is a place for dignity and appreciation and accepting and valuing women's work. And of course, this kind of social motherhood is going towards the direction when motherhood is becoming a paid profession. So this kind of paid social motherhood, which of course is well known from the history, from the fascist and from the Nazi family policies, is somehow used in the illiberal states not only to create an ideological framing for keeping women away from the labor market, but also to create an alternative value system, an alternative vocabulary to the language of rights. This creation of an alternative value system, an alternative vocabulary to the language of rights, it's a strategy, and American conservatives are taking note. More on that after the break. White Picket Fence is supported by Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood stands for care. Your health is their highest priority, and they believe your body is your own. Nearly 600 Planned Parenthood health centers across the country offer a range of education and sexual and reproductive health care services, including birth control, STI testing and treatment, wellness exams, preventative cancer screenings, and abortion care, where it's legal. Visit PlannedParenthood.org or call 1-800-230-PLAN to learn more or book an appointment in person, by phone, or telehealth. Their trained health educators are able to answer your questions about sexual health in real time, totally free and totally confidential. Text 774636-PP-INFO to get answers. Stay tuned until the end of the episode for a conversation with Nancy Davis, a mother from Louisiana who has firsthand experience with the state's restrictive and harmful abortion laws as a result of Roe being overturned. It's August 2022. Victor Orban walks onto a stage, brightly lit in red and blue. And he's got an almost proud smile on his face as he waves to the crowd that's clapping and whooping. He approaches the microphone and starts his speech. And it's in English. Politics, my friend, are not enough. This war is a culture war. We have to revitalize our churches, our families, our universities, and our community institutions. Hungary. Orban is not speaking to his own citizens. He's in Dallas, Texas, speaking to pundits, politicians, and the GOP faithful. He's at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. American conservatives have gathered to hear what a political leader from a small country 5,000 miles away 
has to say on one of their largest stages. We know that family is the place to transfer the values of parents to the next generation. If traditional families are gone, there is nothing that can save the West from going under. Hungary shall protect the institution of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. To sum up, the mother is a woman, the father is a man, and leave our kids alone. Full stop, end of discussion. (laughs) They ate it up. So much so that Orban became something of a cult hero for the American right. Suddenly, conservatives were rushing to make the pilgrimage to Hungary. CPAC hosted its first-ever European conference there. Tucker Carlson broadcast from Budapest. The Hungarian government protects its border because it wants to protect its citizens. Why can't we have this in America? People have a lot of respect for this prime minister. He's a respected man. And you look at some of the problems that they have in Europe that are tremendous because they've done it a different way than the prime minister. The CPAC crowd sounds almost jealous of Orban's strategy for gaining and maintaining power. He's attacking his opponents and portraying them as enemies of the state. And it works. Here's Elizabeth Zorowski again. Viktor Orban goes after the left viciously and ferociously. That is a big part of his politics. That is a big part of how he conducts himself. He says the left is a threat to civilization, and I'm going to go after them. I'm going to beat them. I'm going to win elections, and I'm going to be popular for it. That is how, you know, I think the U.S. conservatives perceive him in the U.S. They love Orban Swagger, his own-the-lib style. It's been a tactic we've seen them use for years. But what's new is their growing embrace of a liberalism and the government as an enforcer of a very specific, very fringe social agenda. The government is the only place, is an institution that the right can control through which it can exert a cultural politics. And that's kind of what Orban is doing, and that's where I think they see potential. And no one has absorbed Orban's lessons or deployed them more effectively than Ron DeSantis. In some ways, Florida has become a mini-Hungary. Some of the things that you're seeing happening, of course, in Florida now with these kinds of takeovers of liberal colleges that you have with DeSantis, I think this is the kind of thing that they have in mind. Okay, we control the government in Florida. We don't control the culture, but we're going to use the government to try to control the culture and recreate this kind of conservative, traditional civilization that has been utterly destroyed by the left. And we're going to do it, you know, without apology. And what's more, at the end of it, voters are going to like it and they're going to thank us for it. In other words, DeSantis is not going to let popular opinions stand in his way. He and his GOP colleagues are using their supermajority to roll back rights and define the enemy. Let's take Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. That was modeled after something Hungary did. In 2021, Orban banned any mention of anything LGBTQ-related in sex ed classes. The next year, Florida Republicans introduced their bill. Then, there are the attacks on education. We talked about DeSantis's war on K-12 education back in episode one. But like Hungary, he's also going after higher education. 
Just last month, Republicans introduced a bill that would ban majors in subjects like critical race theory and gender studies and prevent public spending on efforts to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. DeSantis has even taken a page out of Orban's book when it comes to the press. He's currently trying to pass legislation that would limit free speech protections and make it easier for people to sue the media for defamation. The kind of authoritarianism that once felt far away is now in our backyard. But as important as the parallels are, it's also important to draw distinctions. And of course, in the United States, we don't have a tradition of that. We're very much a sort of, you know, government doesn't tell me what to do, you know, get out of my backyard kind of a place. So we don't have this kind of tradition in the U.S. for the most part. Well, and federalism. So we have, you know, much more active state governments, et cetera. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point. You can't do in the U.S. what you can do in Hungary. I mean, each state has, for the most part, control over what what kinds of policies they're implementing. So you can't just have somebody say, "Okay, gender studies is illegal and now it's illegal. You can't do that in the U.S. Power in the U.S. is a lot less centralized. It'd be much harder for a president to do here what Orban did. But if one were to do it, a lot of the targets of that power would be, of course, rolling back rights that women in the United States have won in the last 50 years. And of course, obviously, what happened at the Supreme Court with Roe v. Wade last summer is the perfect, perfect example of that. I mean, these are some of the first kind of, in this kind of reactionary conservative vision, those are some of the first rights to go. The connection is perhaps indirect, but the style of wielding power and the sort of end point, end goal, that connection is quite clear. As a former communist country, Hungary also lacks the long tradition of civil society groups that we have in the U.S. United States, civil societies, civic groups are very strong and very widespread and that sort of thing. And so in some ways, in order to wield power in the United States, you actually have to have civic groups or civil society on your side or under your umbrella or working for you. Which brings us back to moms. And the reason that groups like Moms for Liberty are so important to DeSantis, if he's going to use authoritarian methods to enshrine his cultural worldview into law, he needs the veneer of popular support. A vocal contingency of mothers saying that this agenda benefits them and their kids. And it's why this entire movement needs influencers like the Tradwives. Because if Moms for Liberty are the foot soldiers, the Tradwives are the saleswomen. Tradwives inoculate us against extremism by selling their cultural agenda as innocent, pleasant, desirable. They may not talk much about politics, but the agenda is there. What the far right does is that it elevates gender and racial aspects that are predominant within tribe communities and then uses that as leverage to push for its ideology. That's Evian Leidig again. She's studied the relationship between tradwife influencers and extremist and anti-democratic political movements. Although a lot of tradwives shy away from saying the word politics. I'm seeing, like Mrs. Midwest, starting to like and share far-right content, explicitly far-right content. Mrs. Midwest, also known as Caitlin Huber, is one of the more prominent Treadwife influencers. While her hundreds of thousands of followers 
might come to her for tips for skincare or beauty or raising kids. What they might not realize is that she's showing them a path to radicalization. There's been certain far-right accounts that have, with her permission, used her photos in their propaganda. And so she is very deliberately allowing for her visibility in the tribe movement to be weaponized within the far-right. Moreover, just like Moms for Liberty, Mrs. Midwest and her trad wife cohort are intentionally targeting a specific audience, young women. It does reflect a bigger trend happening right now when it comes to generational amnesia about feminism and women's rights. With Gen Z, we're also starting to see that generational amnesia in terms of the lack of education and awareness about how feminism and women's rights did allow them to enjoy their positionings in societies today because it was the efforts of of previous generations. Under the glossy sheen of social media, tradwives are mainstreaming an extremist agenda in a way that feels like a choice, at least for now. But what these young women are recreating is an ideal that was always rooted in racism and classism. And of course, sexism. So it is presenting a very particular form of nostalgia that was not accessible to to most people, quote, back in the day. And that's sort of what they valorize. And the reality is that, you know, this lifestyle excluded large swaths of society. And so that includes as well their focus on what motherhood should be and how that's projected in terms of who has the the time and, and accessible means of care that they can provide for their families. So how do we combat that and stop the growing threat of a liberalism from taking hold in the U.S.? Well, it requires a lot of things. A full-throated defense of democratic institutions, values, and norms of our constitutional rights, our human rights. But it also requires changing the motherhood narratives that we tell publicly, that we tell ourselves, rejecting the false nostalgia that's being aggressively pushed on us from angry men in mega hats or attractive trad wives in well-kept homes. We are not gonna be able to advance an alternative political agenda unless we acknowledge and uplift the different stories about who mothers are, what mothers look like, and what we fight for. These are stories that have always been part of our society. We just haven't elevated them. The traditional assumption in this country is that a mother is unemployed. She's working primarily in the home. Whatever power she has is being exercised within solely the domestic sphere. But for Black women, that has not really been the case. Tune in next week as we explore the other side of motherhood politics. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Taylor Williamson, with production support from Abby Delk. Our editor is Lindsay Cradwell. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Original music by Sean Patel.
On this season of White Picket Fence, we're talking about the political power of motherhood. Over the course of our six episodes, you're going to hear from two women whose work and whose stories intersect with this topic, thanks to our sponsor, Planned Parenthood. We spent this episode of White Picket Fence talking about what ifs. What if trad wives become more than just a social media trend? What if Christian nationalism takes hold in the U.S., like it did in Hungary? But for Nancy Davis, a mother from Louisiana, the effects of right-wing policies aren't what-ifs. Last year, after the fall of Roe v. Wade, Nancy was forced to travel from Louisiana to New York for an abortion. This is her story. At 10 weeks pregnant, I found out my baby was diagnosed with a lethal and deadly condition called a crania. The doctor also stated if I continued the pregnancy, my baby would develop spina bifida, where the head will get smaller and a huge hole would develop in the spinal cord. He told us that this is the worst case scenario, and if your baby lives through birth, he or she would die within minutes. So he suggested we terminate the pregnancy. He proceeded to refer us to Delta Clinic, which is an abortion clinic here in Baton Rouge. So when we left the hospital, we immediately went to Delta Clinic and they told us that they were closed for good and that abortions were not allowed in the state of Louisiana. Because of the abortion ban, you know, Louisiana current laws and my baby still having a heartbeat, we had been denied. I was angry, empty, hopeless, and I also felt like they had thrown us to the wolves. I realized that I was being forced to carry my baby, to bury my baby. I felt like the laws were ambiguous, they were inhumane, and they were as clear as mud. I ended up contacting Planned Parenthood of Greater New York. They assured me that everything would be taken care of. They were very, very informative, and they were so, so, so supportive. Bridget Alliance actually contacted me maybe within a day or so, and they took the stress off by booking flights, room and board, meal stipend, and childcare stipend. I actually got the procedure done on September 2nd of 2022 at the Planned Parenthood of Greater New York. After the procedure, I felt like I had reclaimed what had ultimately been taken away from me, which was a human right, and it was the right to choose. 